We're listening to the worst climate catastrophe in the world in history. Well, 536 AD. Documentary. We should all be uh, aware that this could easily happen again. It happened before. It happened again. Uh, that was Krakatoa, apparently, in Indonesia. Six weeks later, the carbon dating analysis is completed. Professor Sigurdsson faxes the results and an accompanying report to David Keyes. Yeah. So what's this assessment of it? That's just really good news. The results show that the layer immediately above the major eruption is dated as 1215 AD. A layer several layers below it is dated as 6600 BC. Well, if we look at this in detail over here, then we have this picture. We have 1215 AD right on top here. In, in, in this deposit level. But, uh, then we have the, the major eruption. Deposit right underneath it. And then we have about five layers. And uh, then uh, down here we have the charcoal that we dated at 6,600 BC. So in here we have uh, quite a, a, a period of activity and development of the volcano possibly several thousand years. And that leads us to think that the uh, event is much closer to 1215 AD as opposed to 6600. That span still covers the 535 AD event, so it doesn't rule it out at all. Uh, in fact, I think uh, as a result of this, we are focusing more and more in on that time frame. He thinks that the the, the lead period, the lead option, if you like, for when the major eruption that we're talking about took place was the first millennium AD. So although technically it can be anything between 6,600 BC and 1300 AD, all the other pieces of evidence that he's got suggest that it's actually, we can narrow that down to the period, let's say, zero to 1,000. Uh, 5.35 is uh, uh, marvellously right in the middle. So I think that uh, it's looking good. David Keyes's five years of detective work suggest that there is overwhelming evidence of a massive volcanic eruption around 5.35 AD in the tropics. Krakatoa is now the most likely culprit. And that's the volcano 539 that did go is apparently when King Arthur AD died. Would have produced a dust cloud that enveloped the world. It would have been one of the most dangerous spectacles ever seen. mile-high column of ash and dust brought global climatic catastrophe. Darkness, drought, frost and famine. And ultimately, chaos and war.
It was a natural catastrophe that would change the course of human history. So that's, you know, have you ever seen the, um, not the Lady of the Lake, but one about King Arthur, Excalibur. That is a pretty incredible movie. It could be, it could be part of... Were you recently injured in a car accident? Look at this check for $160,000. If you're looking to get money... No, I'm not, no. Go away, man. I just want to learn. Just want to sing um, the real tomb of Christ on civilization collapsed. Historical evidence of the plagues. Top 10 alien encounters of 2022 on the History Channel. Okay. While the United States officially denied investigating UAPs until 2017, some nations had always been ahead in their approach to the subject. Leading the world in UAP research is the South American country of Chile. Chile. In 1997, the Chilean government officially instructed air traffic Chile? control and military personnel to create the Committee for the Study of Anomalous Aerial Phenomena. The committee studies all reports of UAP activity by commercial, military, and civilian pilots. One of the most well-publicized was a shocking incident that occurred in 2014 when Chilean naval officers flying along the coast of Santiago captured video of a UAP. There was an incident in 2014 where sure, a military man. helicopter got video of a strange object. It kind of looked like a rocket with some sort of plume behind it. And they said they were at about 4,500 feet. They have nine minutes of fairly clear video that exists on this. The Chilean military studied it for two years, and they were not able to identify this at all. Chile, like many other South American countries, seem to be far more open to the idea that there are objects coming into our airspace. I think one of the reasons why South American countries are more really open-minded about the UFO and the extraterrestrial question is because it is part of their cultural heritage. In fact, Peru and Bolivia, they're treasure troves for the ancient astronaut theory. The whole pre-Inca culture and even the Inca culture spoke of these beings of light that descended from the sky. And so these countries essentially blew up with this intrinsic knowledge of someone up in the sky. Brazil has had a history of really dramatic UFO encounters. Chile, I think Uruguay, maybe as well. But the whole world didn't pay much attention to it. In addition to South America, now other parts of the world are also starting to disclose information about UFOs. Governments are openly investigating encounters reported by both civilians and military personnel. But many researchers believe the most noteworthy country to join this international effort is also one of the most skeptical. Japan. In 2018, 
the Japanese government released an official statement denying the existence of UFOs. For the longest time in Japan, those in charge, those at the top of the defense departments, have denied UFOs, showed a disinterest in UFOs, basically a complete dismissal of the UFO topic completely. The Japanese government made a sudden press release that said they would not recognize any UFO encounters or extraterrestrial presence on Earth or in the airspace of Japan. I thought this was very strange as we had already interviewed two pilots uh, who had several incidents and uh, testimonies that they gave us regarding various pilots' encounters in the air and from the ground over the years when they were active in the military. Mamoru Sato, a former wing commander in the Japanese Self-Defense Force, said that he regularly heard stories from other pilots as well as civilians about UAP sightings. Some people said, there's something strange up there. There were a lot of opportunities to see inexplicable things, such as UFOs, that were monitoring the sky and training in the sky. And it was my subjective view that we should make a report and organize these things as correct data. But even when this happened, it was only shared among colleagues and not reported publicly. According to Sato, numerous pilots have reported highly unusual encounters with what they described as cigar-shaped objects. During one such incident, a student in his fighter pilot course even lost control of his craft. He said, the aircraft started going crazy. The alarm rang to indicate that something was wrong with the machine. I saw a cigar-shaped object flying about 1,500 meters high from east to west. The anomaly continued until it disappeared. For years, pilots in the Japanese military were instructed to remain silent about such incidents. But in September 2020, Japan's decades-long policy of secrecy and denial came to an end. When Defense Minister Taro Kono tasked the Japanese Self-Defense Forces to make a visual recording of any encounter with an unexplained craft, many believe this very public shift in policy was prompted by a meeting held one month earlier between Minister Kono and his U.S. counterpart, Defense Secretary Mark Esper. The Japanese, after this meeting, uh, gave a press conference. The and they Jap said one ponies. of the topics that came up was unidentified aerial phenomena. And we talked about the need to cooperate on this. That's a major development, I think, when you have close allies like the U.S. and Japan openly speaking about the U.S. This weird new tool is quickly becoming the most popular Christmas gift of 2022. It replaces up to 90% of tools, eliminating the hassle of owning a heavy toolbox by combining openly speaking about the UFO issue and agreeing to cooperate. We've come so far in such a short amount of time. The fact that Japan denied that there was UFO activity happening in their country, and now they're establishing the Japanese Space Operations Squadron, says to me that there clearly is something going on over the skies of Japan. Um, Ancient astronaut theorists suggest or it could just governments be covered throughout for the world are government finally program. beginning to acknowledge that there may be objects in our skies that are not of this Earth.
1946. Esteemed U.S. Naval officer and explorer Admiral Richard Byrd, one of the first pilots to fly over both the North and South Poles, organizes Operation High Jump, the largest expedition ever to travel to Antarctica. With 13 ships, 23 aircraft, and over 4,700 military personnel. Ships. This was very important that after the conclusion of World War II, Admiral Byrd was asked if he would mount a large armada and go for four months. It was supposed to be that they would go in December, January, February, and March, and there was a list of military goals that they were to achieve. But by the end of February, something happened. One of the mission's official goals was investigating sites for potential military bases in Antarctica. But during his explorations, Admiral Byrd allegedly came upon something highly unexpected. This story is said to come from his diaries, not his published account of the trip, but something he held back and then later was suppressed by government authorities that found it frightening. In his diary, which was discovered by his son after his death, Admiral Byrd tells an extraordinary story. Admiral Byrd heard there was an entrance to the center of the Earth through the South Pole. Uh -huh. And he took planes into the South, under the South Pole. And when he did that, he discovered that as he flew over the pole, suddenly he's looking at things that shouldn't be there. I mean, it was temperate. What? Oh. His squadron flew under the Earth, into the Earth. It turns into this lush and green area, and he can't even believe his eyes. But that's just the beginning of his extraordinary story. He tells how all of a sudden he starts to see a shimmering rainbow city. It's made of crystal. Wow. His Whoa. airplane is taken control of when he suddenly sees these flying disc-shaped objects around them that lead him to the creatures. They were monitoring the sky. I've been... This was very important, that after the Linda conclusion Molson of World War II, Admiral II, and he can't even believe his eyes, but that's just the beginning of his extraordinary story. He tells how all of a sudden he starts to see a shimmering rainbow city that's made of crystal. His airplane is taken control of when he suddenly sees these flying disc-shaped objects around them that lead him to the ground. Whereupon, he's escorted into a cavernous type of an area where he meets a being he refers to as the master in his diary. The master tells him that they're highly disappointed in what humans are doing with nuclear weapons and how they've recently destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they wow. really are concerned about what is going on on the surface of the planet. They tell Admiral Byrd that they hope that humanity will ultimately stop this. For UFO researchers, <laughs> this account from Admiral Byrd's diary is particularly significant due to the fact that the modern UFO era began right after World War II and the detonation of the first atomic bombs. It has also been noted 
that a high number of UFO sightings have been reported in the vicinity of nuclear missile silos. Admiral Byrd's story is congruent with the stories that we hear from numerous uh, accounts of angelic or extraterrestrial type beings that are very concerned about what humanity is doing with nuclear weapons. Just ask the Air Force officers at the U.S. missile silos, the nuclear missile silos, that have seen their silos and their nuclear arms disarmed by what are perceived to be extraterrestrial beings. They're very concerned that we are ultimately not just going to destroy ourselves, but could harm our planet, which is their world as well. If Admiral Byrd's secret diary is authentic, makes sense to me. does it reveal not only that there are highly advanced beings living inside the Earth, but also that they are monitoring what happens on the surface? Mm -hmm. According to the diary, after this incredible encounter, Admiral Byrd was eager to share his story, but was ordered to remain silent. Bird comes back after this experience. He is taken to a government compound where he is told that he is never to speak of this publicly and that everything he says is, is classified. Could Admiral Bird's story point to a profound connection between the ancient traditions of strange beings living inside the Earth and the modern-day UFO phenomenon? Ancient astronaut theorists say yes and believe we may be fast approaching the time when we will find ourselves face to face with the beings of inner earth. Yeah. Bridgeport, Connecticut, 1953. Very disappointed. Albert K. Bender, <laughs> the nation's... Sounds like a... Like a nine Albert K. Bender, the nation's top UFO investigator, receives a threatening visit that will bring his research to an abrupt and premature halt. Albert K. Bender founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau. This was during the big UFO flap of 1952 when flying saucers were witnessed over Washington, D.C. and many other areas around the world. And this organization blew up big within that first year. However, just a year later, he suddenly ended the International Flying Saucer Bureau, and people wondered why. And what happened was that he came home one night, went into his bedroom, and suddenly these three dark, shadowy figures materialized through his wall into his bedroom. They were wearing the hats and the overcoats. They had glowing eyes, and they smelled like sulfur. According to Bender... The three entities communicated with him through telepathy, warning him to discontinue his UFO research and stop publishing his influential magazine, The Space Review. Afterwards, he became ill and didn't eat for three days. After this experience, Bender was repeatedly visited. He said they gave him headaches, they, they controlled him telepathically, and he ultimately gave up his UFO researches and stopped publishing The Space Review, in which he documented UFO sightings throughout the world. Hmm. He told the people that had been subscribers and he was working with, they told me we come from a very, very far distant place in this universe. 
and we have been coming and going from your planet for some time and we cannot allow you or anyone to interfere and in fact we have taken many humans from this planet to cover up our operations until we are done this is a done. very influential done with point what? in our history, especially in the ufology community, in which shadow entities interfered and thwarted somebody's research and possibly set the field back a number of years. The visitors Albert Bender encountered matched descriptions of what is today known as the Hat Man, but he called them by another name, the Men in Black. While the Men in Black are often portrayed in pop culture as government agents, many who claim to have encountered them believe they are something other than human. The men in black are mysterious and nefarious entities. They're shadowy, they wear black clothing. Many people believe that they're either extraterrestrials or somehow they're working for extraterrestrials to prevent humans from learning the truth about extraterrestrials on Earth. They talk to UFO witnesses. Some people have reported they seem to not know things that are common, like you know, which end of a pen to use, or uh, if they're offered something to eat or drink, they don't know how to eat or drink it. What? Both the hat man and the men in black are known for wearing a hat. They both influence people telepathically. They both appear to be sometimes malevolent, and they could in fact be the same type of a being. There's a theory that the hat man and the men in black are actually the ringleaders of the shadow people. And that, in fact, they direct the shadow people to influence humans in particular to keep them from investigating UFO experiences. There's no question that the stories of shadow people, men in black, and other visitations are all mixed in together. Are they the same? Possibly. But what I think what is really happening on this planet is mass hysteria of real events that are happening to real people. And they can't understand what's going on. Who knows what's happening? In Suffolk County, England, there was a remote forest in the village of Rendlesham that has become famous for being the site of one of the most extraordinary UFO encounters ever reported. And some of those who experienced it believe this incident also involved time travel. The event occurred on December 26, 1980. Airman John Burroughs was performing a routine security check at a U.S. Air Force base when he received orders to investigate a possible downed aircraft. My supervisor called me on the radio and asked me to meet up with him so we can check these gates. We're driving down the road leading to the east gate to check on it when all of a sudden he saw some strange lights in the forest. So he decided to call in 11 of them strange. They decided to send one of the security units down. So I'm kind of we got down there and he started thinking like the lyrics. I like to see all these multiple color lights and things like that. And the air felt different. I don't know how to really explain that. But it did feel like there was electricity in our skin and hair and stuff. But that progressively got worse the closer we got to the And it got more intense. There seemed to be like an electricity charged atmosphere. And then also there were points where it seemed like everything was going in slow motion. As the servicemen approached the strange lights, Sergeant Henderson reportedly saw a large craft just beyond the tree line. 
The craft was triangular in shape, measuring about six to seven feet high, black in color. I'd come around to the far side of the craft, and that's what I noticed that there was, you know, inscription on the side. You know, it is about three feet long, maybe six inches high. Um, and uh, so I'm expecting to find, I don't know. No one tells stories better than Audible, the home of storytelling. From motivation and comedy to true crime and memoirs, and so much more. Um, and uh, so I'm expecting to find some kind of prototype stuff, uh, USAF. I'm, I'm looking for something very familiar. Instead of something familiar, I see these pictorial type glyphs. And I've got to run my hand over the side of the craft. I don't know how to explain this. It's like someone was holding a picture up, okay? I could see it in my mind's eye. Zeros and ones. So I recorded those. One after another. When Peniston touched the craft, he then said that he felt a strange download of information to his mind, and he felt compelled the next day to write down a series of zeros and ones, which we now regard as binary code. Years later, a computer programmer took this information, ran it through a translation program, and a message emerged. The message read, Exploration of Humanity, Continuous Planetary Advance, Eyes of Your Eyes, Origin Year 8100. When one sees origin year 8100, one is forced to speculate, might we be looking not just at extraterrestrials, but time travelers from the future? After the incident, the U.S. military conducted a brief investigation, but allegedly tried to keep the eyewitnesses away from the press. But for Airman Burroughs and Officer Peniston, the event wasn't easy to leave behind. Get out of there. Both men had lasting physical effects from the encounter and even reported After the incident, I started having drugs and I cried. At one point, my gums turned white. I also had vision problems, and when I went and saw the doctor, one of his first questions was, had I been ever exposed to radiation? I've definitely had dreams about it, and I still have things about what happened and what did I got out of service in 1993. Then I was out about maybe three months. And then I called in these dreams and nightmares. During the dreams, I could see that these were time travelers, 40 to 50,000 years in the future. I see that the purpose to come back was to correct things, to fix things. Something horrible has happened. Something I have to correct. But it requires time. It requires going back into the past. I never had a feeling of it being extraterrestrial. It's always been that they were simply in the future. Could it be that the craft reportedly witnessed by James Peniston and John Burroughs came not from a distant star, 
but from a distant point in time. Central New Mexico, October 19th, 2019. Investigative journalist Linda Moulton Howe has invited ancient astronaut theorist Giorgio Sitti to join her on a trip to a spot in the desert just outside Roswell, very near what is known as the skip site. According to eyewitnesses, one of the three UFOs seen in the sky in July 1947 first crashed to Earth near this location, then was propelled back into the air, keeping like a stone in a pond before finally coming to rest. Linda was contacted by geologist Frank Kimbler, who wants to show her mysterious metal fragments that he found here and search the area for more. Linda, this is so exciting. I have not been here in a couple of years, so I'm really looking forward to meeting Frank. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you've got a geologist who's helping because... The geologist looks at land and says, if there is debris, there's going to be some kind of a drift with the land. And just from what I know, he has studied Sumerians meticulously. Right. Giorgio and Linda arrive at the skip site and meet Frank Himmler, a local geologist and professor of earth science. How are you? How are you? All right. Linda, finally. Yeah. You and I have been chasing these artifacts. Chasing the metals. Professor Kimber has spent nearly a decade beneath the purported trajectory of the Roswell craft with infrared technology and metal detectors. When an object crashes, you're going to scatter a variety of materials around knobs, control devices, plastic, wires, whatever. If it's coming apart, it's going to leave those pieces behind. And those are the kinds of pieces that I want to find and have found some of. Since 2011, Professor Kimbler has uncovered more than a dozen metal fragments that he is subjected to scientific testing and found to be highly unique. That's what we want to go out there and see yeah. where you've been getting this. Frank. Yeah. What's inside the case? Oh, this this is the magic right here. This is some of the material that I have found out here. Uh, the practice you are about to learn is almost never described publicly. The case out here uh, using a metal the stuff is, is, is very interesting. It's all twisted and mangled up. Something that you would expect to happen from a, uh, a crash is to have metal that's, that's compact and twisted. When Professor Kimbler laid out his box of his pieces of metal, hmm. the first thing that struck me is these were tiny, tiny, tiny fragments. Could they possibly be from wreckage? pieces are small, uh, which is things that the government would have missed. Uh, they wouldn't have been able yeah. to. Yeah, and here is my magic. Let's get a comparison here. Oh, this, look at it. It's oh, like a snow After all these years, this, all of the pieces are just absolutely pristine. That's the magnesium site. This has got layers to it. That's amazing. It's but I bet you've never seen anything like no. that. No. Being an earth scientist, being a geologist, 
I've seen lots of all kinds of materials that are out there. I have never, ever seen anything like this. This fragment that Linda is showing me, it, that stuff is absolutely amazing. I've never seen anything like it before in my life. And what's interesting about it is that it has some layers, some banding on it. And that banding is very similar to some of the banding that I found in photomicrographs, the material that I have from out here. I think, as Giorgio is holding it, he's holding something made by another intelligence from someplace we don't understand. And this is truly extraterrestrial. Is it possible that Georgia was holding an actual wreck of an extraterrestrial craft? And if yeah. so, put yeah. even more yeah. incredible artifacts still remain in the desert outside Roswell. We need to get going and we need to get out there so you guys can experience finding some of this stuff, which is uh, let's go explore. So where do you think best here now? We're in the perfect spot and we're gonna cover this whole thing right here. Uncovering bits of debris in this vast desert is a daunting task. But after nearly a decade spent combing the entire area, Professor Kimbler has pinpointed certain hot spots. Some of the artifacts he brought with him today were discovered in this very location just within the past month. So just above the area of the ground, we're going to switch back and forth like this. And we're going to cover this side to side back and forth, little by little. I've been out here six or seven or eight hours at a wax thing in this thing till my arms break off. We can uh, cut across this way. You're waiting for that beat. We're looking off in, in this general direction out here. The craft basically either had some kind of mechanical failure or something blew up. Professor Kendler scans the area along the gouge, meticulously covering every inch. After nearly two hours, he has not detected any metal objects. Giorgio, my arm is about to break off, and I'm kind of hoping that you just might have a little bit better luck than me sure. doing Let's this. See. You saw what it was doing. It's already fired up, and okay. I'm going to let you swing this, and we can just walk in. There you go. It's working perfect. Maybe you'll be able to get the magic flowing on this. Well, I think we need to head up right over here because this is right at the base of the hill and there's a bunch of disturbed rocks. Might be a good place to uh, to capture okay. material that has run off. Also, oh. within just a few minutes of taking over the metal detecting, Giorgio gets yeah. a hit. Huh. I heard something. Perry, yeah. something. Oh, my God. There is something there. We need to dig it up. Let me help you find it. Okay. It's right here somewhere. We'll find it. We will find it. You're on top of it. You're right there. See if it's there. It's in my hand. Wow. Now comes the hard part. It's a, a piece oh, of wire. Right. Okay. A tiny little, little piece wire. of wire. We're going to keep it. We're, we're going to take it and have it analyzed because maybe it's got something in it. This year. Let's still investigate this. We need to take it and have, and have it done. Giorgio hands off the metal detector to Linda, who continues along the gouge. Just a few feet from where Giorgio detected a piece of wire, oh, they get another hit. <laughs> All right, pick up your uh, your bracelet too. I tell you what, let's um, dump dump it into this hand right here. Here we go. 
It's another piece of wire. It's so strange looking, though. Why is it so twisted and mangled? I have no idea. You said that if there was debris, this would be one of the places because of geographic uh, terrain it's, right it's here. It's runoff, and this is what I've used time and time again to find stuff. As far as Giorgio and Linda are concerned, any metal objects found in the so-called gouge area are worth examining. Is it possible that these Is bits of wire represent debris from the 1947 crash that was overlooked by the military? Quang Binh Province, Vietnam, 1991. Longer Hokan discovers a mysterious entrance to a hidden mountain cave obscured by dense jungle overgrowth. The cliffs leading down to the entrance are so steep he cannot explore it further. later, the British Cave Research Association finally explores the cave. What the team discovers is astounding. It is the largest underground chamber on the planet. It's not just the cave. It's an actual world in Vietnam. Inside this cave, it's 40 stories high. There's actually an ancient forest. That flowing water, not just a puddle or a stream, but an actual river. Inside the cave is an entire growing ecosystem. And it's so deep that it looks like it's an entrance to a whole other reality. This incredible subterranean realm, called the Songdong Cave, is estimated to be roughly 3 million years old. It runs through the earth for nearly six miles, and numerous areas where the cave scene has allows sunlight to enter, resulting in the growth of trees and other vegetation. But according to area residents, what's most notable about Songdung Cave is the strange creatures that are believed to dwell within it. Local residents describe seeing reptilian-type humanoid beings oh emerging from the Songdong Cave. And they believe that they actually live deep inside this cave. What's fascinating about this is that these reptilian-type humanoid beings are similar to the seraphim or the winged serpents in Kabbalistic tradition. The seraphim are said to have gone and lived in the inner earth, according to Kabbalistic teaching. Is it possible that reports of reptilians at Sondong Cave are encounters with beings from inner Earth? While it may sound too incredible to be true, there have been reports that during the Vietnam War in the 1970s, U.S. soldiers encountered what they described as upright lizards inhabiting caves. And accounts of reptilian beings existing in underground caverns can be found all across the globe. Even on the other side of the world, in Cusco, Peru. 
throughout Peru and around Cusco particularly. There are many, many stories of a tunnel system that has something to do with serpent deities, which they call the Amaris. The Peruvian authorities themselves decided it was too dangerous for people to go into these tunnels, so they looked for all of the entrances they could around Cusco, and they sealed them up. Wow. And this is a well-known story within Peruvian history. While there have been many reports from around the world of human-like reptilians, there is another innocent entity described in the Zohar that is even more commonly witnessed in modern times. According to Zohar's literature, there are beings inside the earth having large black eyes and a nose that leaves only two dark holes on the face. Now that corresponds to things that we've seen about, heard about these, uh, for lack of a better word, ETs. There is a lot of evidence that these beings that we think are coming from another planet are not coming from another planet. They're coming from inside our own Earth. The black-eyed entities, commonly referred to as grays by ufologists, are the beings most often reported by alleged alien abductees. Many of whom claim to have been taken aboard saucer-shaped craft. Could it be that the so-called flying saucers, so often reported in modern times, are not coming from outer space, but inner Earth? According to some ancient astronaut theorists, this notion is supported by numerous accounts of UFOs that are seen disappearing into the landscape, and sometimes even flying directly into mountains. In the middle of the Pacific Ocean, roughly 2,500 miles northeast of Australia, lie the ruins of a once great ancient city, Nanmadal, consisting of hundreds of man-made islands off the eastern coast of Micronesia. It has been dubbed the eighth wonder of the world. The site of Nanmadal on the island of Pompeii in Micronesia is one of the strangest places on the planet. It's an 11-square-mile complex composed of over 250 million tons of basalt logs. They're floating on a submerged coral reef. They're 18 feet long, 4 feet in diameter, and 40 feet up in the air. Why did they do this, and how did it? Today, the site lies abandoned and shunned by the local Micronesians, who consider it haunted. Non Madal is one of these disappeared civilizations. It's fascinatingly interesting. This seems to have been the center of power of a uh, major civilization, and yet it also seems that it might have been built on earlier civilizations that are lost in time. Since stone is difficult to accurately date, no one knows for certain when it was constructed or how it was built. So there is this economist, famous economist and former intelligence advisor named Jim Rickards that just released a video where he predicts the, the future of the U.S. economy. And I'm going to be honest, I watched it and it sounds more like a warning um, than it, how it was built. When you ask the local population, where were these blocks quarried? In units, and they will tell you, from across the island, 
and they were thrown across the island. According to legends, twin sorcerers, a giant poison, came down from the sky to make the sight and position the basalt column as they desired. A legend when I hear stories like that, I wonder, well, perhaps we have another example of what I refer to as misunderstood technology. As with other sites like Pumapunku, Baalbek, and the Kori Kancha, legend says that these structures were not the first to exist here, but instead were built above a much older city. The mystery of Nakador is even more intriguing when we factor in the local legend that states it was built on an earlier civilization called Kanamweso, which is submerged below water but still has those same basalt megaliths. Objects that appear to be basalt columns have in fact been found beneath the ocean at Nanmadal. And those who have studied the columns, both above and below the water, have discovered a curious electromagnetic anomaly. There's a strong magnetic field in every single one of the 250 million tons of basalt there. You can take a compass and run it along these basalt blocks, and your compass will just spin as you move it along the blocks. Also, it's thought that... The site itself is a special power spot, and it's energy vortex, and that's why Namadal is built there. And this legendary sunken city called Kanamweso as well. The local population also reports many, many sightings of orbs and lights that have been seen hovering around Namadal. Is it because of the magnetic spectrum of Earth? And you have to wonder if through magnetism the stones were transported in the first place, if they were transported through the air. Some ancient astronaut theorists suggest that elevated electromagnetic energy present at Nanmadal was not only a powerful tool used to move the giant basalt columns, but that it may also have been the reason that extraterrestrials helped the locals to build here in the first place. Could it be that there was a sacred kind of part of the site there where they were connecting with the gods? You know, not just through visionary experiences, but actually something in the land, like uh, a magnetic object or a vortex. We hear the word vortex in science fiction, popular culture, all the time, and a vortex is just a mathematical thing that describes a swirling motion. An electromagnetic field can be formed in a vortex. You could create a vortex that would enable transporting information from somewhere else to here at the speed of light or faster than the speed of light. And if there are places on the Earth where these types of vortexes may be stronger than others, you can see people going there to build structures that maybe altered the electromagnetic field of the local environment. Was there even some kind of portal or vortex present in some of these sacred places? If that's the case, we have to question these principles of oracle sites and megalithic temples. They built harnesses 
to be these communication portals between these different places. There is no question in my mind that these are much older sites than we think, and that they were spots for extraterrestrial communication a long, long time ago. The Roswell incident remains the most well-known UFO event in history. But there have been reports of numerous other UFO crashes all over the world, as well as the recovery of strange metal debris. In 1991, geologists searching for gold deposits in Russia's Ural Mountains made a highly unexpected discovery. At depths of over 30 feet, they found a scattering of tiny metal coils and springs. Russian scientists are finding these tiny nanoparticles. They found thousands of these things. They have to look at them through microscopes. They're, they're, some of them are just one ten-thousandth of an inch you know, in size. They're all kinds of spirals and tiny machined bits. When they look at it, they seem to be exactly like the kind of tiny nanoparticles and machine bits that we are creating today. What you see under the electron microscope is mind-boggling because you see spirals, you see definitely something where the scientists who came to the conclusion that these items are artificially made of and so that right there is incredibly interesting because that was found exactly at the skip site. Molybdenum is the same. You know what happens when you put rosemary leaves in a jar of alcohol? Studies show that rosemary can help improve memory and cognition. It can also help increase blood flow to the brain to relieve headaches, especially migraines. So you want to know what happens when you put rosemary in a bottle of alcohol? It creates a tincture that can have powerful memory benefits. Rosemary also works as an anti-inflammatory, an antifungal, and can aid digestion. It has also been shown to help prevent hair loss just as effectively as the drug minoxidil. Today I'm going to show you how to make the most powerful, legal, pain-killing powder using this useless weed you probably have growing in your backyard. This plant is called wild lettuce. It acts by blocking pain signals from traveling along the nerves to the brain, just like morphine. After you wash about 20 leaves, put them in the blender with a half cup of water. Place the resulting mixture on low heat for about two hours until the blend becomes thicker, just like this. Then strain it using cloth. The liquid you get is where the pain-killing potency of the plant lies. Heat it up again on low heat until most of the water evaporates. This is the taste you should get. This is a painkiller. But if you want to store it for long term, you need to turn it into powder. In order to do this, you can smear it on a tray, place it in the oven to dry, or use a dehydrator if you have. Now, the last thing you need to do is to blend it one last time until you get a fine, pain-killing powder. If you want, you can go ahead and encapsulate it. Hi, I'm Dr. Nicola Pellingham, huh. and today... Exactly at the site. Molybdenum is the same material detected in the metal fragments that Frank Kimber found in the desert outside Roswell. It is a super strong element commonly used in NASA spacecraft. These microscopic spirals were made of wolfram and molybdenum. So the melting temperature for wolfram is about 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit and for molybdenum is uh, about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Some, uh, version of NASA from some other star system to send a probe here to Earth 
and it could fail uh, and crash into Earth. And we would look at it and think, wow, where did this come from? Maybe one day we might be creating our own Roswell when we send our first probe to the nearest star. Ancient astronaut theorists point out that dozens of visitors to the Ural Mountains have reported encounters with strange, cigar-shaped craft trailing fire across the sky. Could this be the Russian Roswell? Indeed, people living in the Ural Mountains maybe more often than people living in other parts of Russia witness some strange phenomena in the air and on the ground. Ural Mountains are a very interesting space in the paranormal history of Russia. And I've studied a lot because there have always been incredible UFO sightings in the Ural Mountains. There are stories of civilizations that have disappeared or went under the ground, uh, the so-called uh, dwarf people in the Ural Mountains. If the nanoparticles discovered in the Ural Mountains are debris from a crashed alien craft, they bring up another intriguing possibility. Because based on how deep below the Earth they were found, they could have been deposited there thousands of years ago. They're thinking that these things must be over 50,000 years old. So is this also a debris field from a crashed extraterrestrial craft in the Ural Mountains? There could be crash sites all over the world that are hundreds of thousands of years old, right up to modern times. Rumors have that there are facilities located all over the world holding the remnants of crashed extraterrestrial craft, like in the remote hills of China, at Pine Gap in Australia, and Rubber Man in England. Who knows if over the chronology of the history of planet Earth, there were more craft, just like at Roswell, that crashed. Is it possible that Roswell is just one of many locations on planet Earth where debris from crashed extraterrestrial craft can be found? In May 2019, former British intelligence officer Nick Pope visited the East SETI Ranch in the Pacific Northwest. East SETI is home to the enlightened contact with extraterrestrial intelligence organizations. UFO hunters consider it a major hotspot for unexplained aerial phenomena. Over the past 33 years, scientists from Boeing, NASA, and Lockheed Skunk Works have come to East SETI to research the activity in the sky. But what sets East SETI apart from other UFO watch organizations is that their most powerful observational tool is not a telescope, it's remote viewers. Remote viewing is essentially taking people who have or believe they have the ability to see things not with their eyes but with their mind and putting them to work gathering intelligence. My first exposure to remote viewing came when I ran the UK government's UFO program. We looked at UFOs, crop circles, alien abductions, anything mysterious and unexplained, I did.
remote viewing might be tapping into unknown dimensions. I know this sounds like science fiction, but actually it isn't. Some of the work being done at places like the Large Hadron Collider are now quite seriously looking at the concept of other dimensions. At ESETI, ex-government remote viewing expert John Vivanco. Hi there. And UFO Skywatcher, Peter Slattery, lead a team of remote viewers. Today, they are working on an experiment that will combine human observation and remote viewing in an attempt to better understand what has become a recent increase in UFO sightings over Washington State's Mount Adams. So let me know, please, what are your respective backgrounds with this? I am a remote viewer. I've been uh, doing this professionally for 20 years, over 20 years now. I'm, I run a team of remote viewers, and we work operational-type projects for clients. And we look at different types of phenomena that can't be explained through conventional means. I'm known as an experiencer slash contactee, but also I hold Skywatch events. So we're going to do a Skywatch and just see what happens. Where are we going to do that? Just going to go out to the Skywatch field here, so let's go and check it out. Okay, great. As Nick joins Peter to conduct field surveillance, John has stationed two remote viewers in a windowless room, armed with nothing more than a pencil and a drawing pad. The way it works is that a remote viewer is given a random eight-digit number connected to what they're supposed to remote view. Now, they don't get what they're supposed to remote view, only the number. That's it. They're going to be... ...view only the number. That's it. They're going to be at the location of whatever it is through the mind describing exactly what that is. So what are these remote viewers actually going to be doing in there? It's not so much viewing. We get visual snippets and a lot of body sensations. Basically, they're going to be drawing and writing a lot on papers. Afterwards, once we've got the data, how are we actually going to analyze it? So I will collect that information from them when they're done, and then in the morning we can meet up and see if we can come up with uh, some explanation for what went on. Well, great. That sounds good. I hope that we're going to have some interesting and meaningful results. After discussing the details of the evening's plan, Peter and Nick part ways with John and join the rest of the Skywatch team in the field. Neat. I see the team has grown somewhat. So we've got Adam here with us. Okay. He's going to be helping out with the satellite tracker and, and monitoring the gear. Just very important to be very quick off the mark, knowing what's what. Sometimes we could have two things in the sky at the same time, and one of them could be a satellite, the other not. People can mix it up. So when we're focused on the sky, it's great that somebody's focused on the satellite tracker. Great. So we're essentially making sure we don't miss anything. Oh, definitely, yeah. We don't want to muddle things up. The team gets to work setting up the watch station before the sun goes down for the evening. They will be using various technology, including infrared cameras, in order to capture any anomalies in the sky. The location for their watch overlooks Mount Adams, the largest active volcano in Washington State, and a hotspot for UFO sightings. As night sets in, the team has all eyes glued to the sky and on the lookout for any objects that might cross their path. <coughs> Utilizing real-time satellite tracking data, they can anticipate the arrival of all man-made traffic passing over their airspace. 
Visual representations of whatever comes to them. 